Verse 13 of chapter 9. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of the heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that all those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, And he sprinkled the book itself and all of the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all of the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. O Lord our God, we come to you humbly this evening asking for your Holy Spirit to be here to fill us so that we might have an understanding of your word that our hearts might be stirred with affection for you, and that we might know you better, Jesus, and love you more when we leave here than we did when we came in. We believe what we do right now is an act of worship to our great and holy Trinitarian God. And we ask, Lord, that you, our God, would receive our worship, empower our worship, And that we are grateful for the ability to worship through your son's sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen. People love religious stuff. Right? Look around. I mean, we rent this building, but there's all kinds of stuff all over the place. People love the stuff. I got a little thing right here. Pretty cool looking little old piece of parchment here. It's from 1915. It's a postcard from 1915. In fact, the stamp is one cent. (laughs) How quaint is that? One cent. (laughs) Well, it was sent out on March the 21st, 1915. And it begins with this. An answered prayer. Whoa. Who doesn't love answered prayers, right? Get your attention right there. Here's the prayer. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray thee to bless and 
to un- keep us. It's written in scribbly language. Keep us and bring us to dwell with thee. Amen. There's the prayer, right? Bless me. Get me to your heaven. Amen. Good prayer, right? So far, so good. What, what could possibly go wrong here, Pat? <laughs> this prayer was sent to me and is being sent all over the world. Copy it and see what will happen. This is a prayer from Jesus' time that he used. <laughs> he wrote it so that all would be blessed and delivered from evil, and everyone who passed it on would be met, who would not pass it on, pardon me, would be met with some misfortune. Copy it and send it to nine of your friends. And in nine days, in nine days, and on the tenth day, great joy will come to you. If you don't send this chain letter, it will be broken. Don't sign your name, only put a date. There's nothing new under the sun, right? This is real, yeah. This is a chain letter from Jesus' prayer supposedly Jesus gave to people in the first century, and it's been going ever since, and don't you break it. you got to send it to those nine people. Look, people love religious stuff, and the reason is is because it gives us something to do. It gives us some kind of point of contact, right? It gives us... A ritual follow, or hey, if I do this, you know, this is a little more sophisticated than a fortune cookie, but unfortunately, that's about all it is, is a little more sophisticated than that. The reason I even bring that up in our context here is because what we have here in Hebrews is a blessing from the Lord and an entrance into his kingdom that is so far grand, so much more superior to something like a simple chain letter prayer that it's laughable. What we see here in our text is absolutely monumental. And it might not even be fair to me to compare the two because what we find in the book of Hebrews is so absolutely earth-shattering and life-changing. Let's look at the text. I'm going to be honest. I said it a little bit ago. We might only get through verse 15. So just be prepared. If we're way deep into this thing and I haven't got to verse 16, you're just going to go, all right, we'll get back to this. All right? Don't panic. Therefore, he, who's he? Right? Jesus, right? Verse 14 tells us, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So Jesus is the point of the text. Now that might sound simplistic, beloved, but it's always important to remember Jesus is the point of the text. So although I probably don't need to bring it up, I'm still going to bring it up because... Well, you know what? It's like Peter said in his second epistle. He says, I know you know these things. I know you're established in these things. But it's good that I keep reminding you of these things. Because we're forgetful. And we get caught up and we get thinking about all kinds of other things. So we need that reminder. Remember, the book of Hebrews is written to a group of Jewish Christians living in Rome that have struggled under persecution. 
The persecution was such that they have had their jobs taken away, their families have disowned them, they have been forbidden from buying and selling in the marketplaces. It's gotten so extreme that some people have gone in and vandalized other people's house, Christians' houses and plundered stuff out of their houses. Some people have been imprisoned. And rare at this point, but it has happened, is that some of them have even been killed for their faith. Now we know there's a whole lot more of that coming. So you can imagine these Jewish Christians who've come out of the 2,000 years of tradition, of religion, of rites, of practices, of sacrifice, of service, and have come to a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of a sudden under this persecution, they begin to go, golly, is this worth it? This is hard. I don't want to see my family going through these kind of things. I don't want my friends to be being ridiculed for their faith. I hate it that that family got their house vandalized and everything stolen from them simply because they believe in Christ. Have you heard one of our friends is in jail? For what? For believing in Christ. You can imagine that inner turmoil that would happen with those kind of circumstances taking place. And so this group of Jewish Christians were debating and thinking, man, maybe it's just better to go back to Judaism. We had it easier then. Yeah, we still got a lot of that ridicule, but we, it sure wasn't as hard as it is now. Some of them were thinking about going to a mystical Judaism, quasi-Gnosticism that worshipped angels along with all kinds of other spiritual things. And so the writer of Hebrews is writing this letter to kind of rein him in and be like, whoa, 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 folks. I get that it's hard. It's hard for everybody all around the world because the world didn't know Christ and if it didn't know Christ or love Christ, it's not going to know us who are Christ's followers, who are Christ's brethren, who have been adopted into the family of God. The reason why we need to stay is because Jesus is better than everything else out there. If you leave and go somewhere else, there's nothing better. There's nothing for you out there because there's nothing better than Christ. Whatever you go to is inferior to Jesus. Jesus is the point. Jesus is our passion. Jesus is our life. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our God. Jesus is our Savior. He and He alone is worthy of all praise, all glory, all honor and worship. Where are you going to go where you're going to find anybody better than Jesus? Nowhere! He is it. That's what the Hebrew writer is doing. He's going, guys, Jesus is great. He's better than everything. You're going to go back to Judaism. What are you going to go to? The Sabbath? Jesus is our Sabbath. You're going to go to sacrifices? Jesus is the sacrifice. You're going to go to the temple? Jesus is the temple. What are you going to go to? Jesus is all of it. He is the chief and the best of beings. And he alone is worthy of our honor and praise. And in that big framework of this book, the writer now comes to the topic of mediator, which you already brought up in chapter 8, but just in passing. Here, flip, or it might be on the same page. In chapter 8 there, verse 6. As it is, Christ, Jesus, 
he has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the old covenant he mediates, or pardon me, that the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Now what the writer of Hebrews has done is focused on those promises for the last little bit. And now he's coming back to Jesus being the mediator of these better promises. Now, what is a mediator? Now, if you, you know, ever had any kind of thing where you've had to do any legal mediation, you kind of have a little bit of an idea, right? You're there, you're across from the person who, you know, you're whatever's going on, and you have somebody in the room with you, or two people in the room with you, that hammer something out that was going to be a fair deal. An impartial person standing on the side trying to make these two people who are opposed to one another come together in some kind of agreement, right? Well, Jesus is a mediator, but his work of mediation is vastly superior to that because the two parties that are opposed to each other are humanity and God. Humanity and God. Humanity has no claim to God. What God has against humanity is their rebellion, their sin, their treason, their hatred, their despising, the fact that God rules over them. That's what our sin is, right? You get that? Our sin is a rejection of God's rule and authority over us. From the simplest of things, right? You've heard me tell that story, right? When I was the little guy there at the Alpha Beta, and my mom's going through, Alpha Beta's a grocery store. It don't exist no more. But we were going through the checkout line at the Alpha Beta, and I was in the little cash ringy yuppie place, on the register next to us where my mom was standing there with her back to me ringing the groceries through, right? You get what, you see the picture? And I knocked over a little box of rubber bands, right? And so I'm start putting them back in the box and I get in my little four or five-year-old head, these rubber bands are awesome. Man, these rubber bands are so cool. And so I took a handful of rubber bands and stuck them in Pat Mather's pocket and I did that in such an obvious way that the woman behind my mom says, your son just put rubber bands in his pocket. All crazy loud like that. Like I can't even do it just, in my mind it was like she had a megaphone. It was like, Patrick Mathers just stole a whole bunch of rubber bands, everybody. And everybody, it was like a movie where everything stops and everyone looks at me. I'm sure my little four-year-old brain has exaggerated the story. But the truth is I stole rubber bands. And I had to put them back, and my mom made me go to the manager of the Alpha Beta and apologize to him with tears. I'm sorry I stole the rubber bands from your store, right? But I had guilt even from that. You know, to be perfectly honest, as silly as that story is, there's a little part of me that still has a little guilt for having done that. <laughs> you know? Why? Why do we have guilt? Why do any, any one of us have guilt at all? It's a weird thing, right? Guilt. 
but yet it is universal to all mankind. You can go to any continent, you can go to any person, you can go anybody anywhere, and you can know one thing about them for sure, is they have guilt. Where in the world is that? Why is that universal within our makeup? This is why. Because God is God and he has created us. He gave us this world to tend, to be stewards of. Not to abuse and not to take it as our own. But to treat it the way the Lord would want it to be treated. And in doing what Adam did, going to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what he did is he said... He took of that fruit and ate it. And in doing that, he said, you are not the ruler and authority here on this world anymore. I am. And in that moment, he claimed that world, the earth, as his own. And God said, nope. It's mine. You are not the authority. I am. And in that moment, in that instant, when Adam fell, guilt came upon all humanity so that every single one who would ever come from the loins of Adam himself would be plagued with this same guilt of Adam. And we live it out as we live out our sins throughout our lifetime. So we're double guilty. We're guilty in Adam and we're guilty because we commit sins ourselves. Therefore, we need a mediator. Because God is just. One word that is very popular these days is that word justice. If justice were to be ours at the hands of God, because we've rebelled against our creator in such a way that we have, we all deserve his punishment. His, I'll, the word wrath is, comes to mind. I know it. I'm keenly aware that I deserve that. <laughs> and so I don't have any claim to God. God in his justice has every right to judge me. So what am I to do? What am I going to do? What could I possibly ever do to make myself right before God? I've already done all of these things. I've already in Adam, and I'm guilty of his sin as much as I am of my own. So what could I possibly do to negate all of that? There's nothing, is there? Which is why God set up this whole entire system in the Old Testament. It was to show us two things broadly. Don't nitpick me here, okay? We can find there's other things too, but... Two major things that God's law in the Old Testament does is one, it reveals God's holy standard. Because if we didn't have that, we would try in our minds, which people do all the time, and I even do from time to time, I bring God down to my level or a level just above me, right? God's good. He's like right here. He, he's of all the people, he's the goodest, right? That's our tendency to do that. And I think it's such a tendency that we don't even realize it until it's pointed out that that's something we do, which is why the law exists in the Old Testament. The law exists because it's God pointing out to us, yeah, I'm not just a little bit better than you. 
I am God and I'm over and above all things as creator. So it reveals to me God's holy standard and how great God is. And then it reveals to me how truly desperately sinful I am. And so how much I am in need of God doing the work of salvation, not myself doing the work. All the blood of bulls and goats could never forgive sins. I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, I know. But that's a good word, isn't it? So we need a mediator. Christ is our mediator. He's the one who comes and stands in between God and his wrath towards us, a just, it's right, it's holy, it's accurate. There's no point where we can look and call anything that God does injustice. Christ stands in between us and him, and he, on our part, takes our sin upon himself and takes God's holy standard and brings it down and applies it to us. This is what he does in his mediatorial work. This is why the new covenant is so greater and so grander than the old covenant. Because the old covenant, all it could do, if the old covenant did everything possible that it set out to do, that it was listed there, you did everything perfect under the law, all it would do is make you neutral. And neutral doesn't get you into God's heaven. Neutral gets you to the place where now you need righteousness. That's all the law could do is make you neutral. And of course, nobody ever lived the law perfectly, not even one single day. And so nobody ever even got to that point. So the old covenant, in doing what it set out to do, revealing God's holy standard, revealing to us our inadequacy, pointed us forward, pointed us down the road, revealed to us that we need something more than this old covenant in order to save us, and that's Christ in the new covenant. Christ is our mediator. Now, what does he do? What does he do in this mediatorial work? I've already talked a little bit about it, but let's read the rest of verse 15. He is the mediator of a new covenant so that... Those who are called, we'll come back to that in a second, may receive the promised inheritance. This is what Christ does in his mediatorial work. He gives to people the promised eternal inheritance. Because a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under that first covenant. A death has occurred. A death has occurred. Under the old covenant, the reason why... ah, Sacrifice is not a good, pleasant topic, is it? Sorry, gang. It was kind of gory. I've been hunting enough times, you know, and you get the animal and you... We have nice words for it. You clean the animal. (laughs) It's a mess. (laughs) But you clean the animal. And you take it home and you dress the animal. (laughs) It's a mess. Under the old covenant, under that old law, sacrifice was a mess. And it showed what God required. It showed that the wages of sin is death. This is what I deserve for my sin. But here he says that a death occurs that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant. So... 
Whereas the animal sacrifices pointed to my need for redemption, Christ's death points to the fact he secured my redemption. Christ's death doesn't just show me my need for redemption. Christ's death actually secures something for me. It does what the old covenant couldn't do. Right? You guys all following me so far? Colossians chapter 2. If you can turn there real quick, go ahead. If not, you can just listen. The Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. You, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by, here's how he did it, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This Jesus set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. We were dead in our trespasses, but God came and he made us alive together by forgiving us all our sins. And he could do this in the person of Jesus Christ because Christ, when he died on the cross, he bore all the wrath of God I deserve. Now, this is going to take us to our third point, really, here. First of all, we've looked at Jesus as a mediator. How does he mediate? And now we're going to look at for whom does he mediate? Okay? What Christ did on the cross is he, upon his death, bore all the wrath of God that I deserve for my sins past present, all the sins I'm committing right now, you, you don't think I'm not sinning cause, just because I'm up here preaching a sermon. It's, it's everywhere. <laughs> and all the sins that I'm going to commit for the rest of my life. Christ individually and specifically atoned for every single one of those sins. On the cross when he was dying, he was thinking about me. Being God Almighty in the flesh had me in his mind because he was bearing the wrath of God. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer might as well have come back, Patrick Stephen Mathers. Because he on the cross was atoning for my specific sins. The mediator does that. The mediator mediates for a specific group of people, not just for an amorphous whoever's out there and happens to clumsily fall into this thing. Or whoever happens to have some kind of emotional response to it. This is a specific group of people. Look what it says. He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called. Those four words are not throwaway words. They're important. Jesus is mediating for those who are called. Look what he goes on to say. That they may receive the promised inheritance since the death has occurred that redeems them, the ones who were called, from transgression committed under the first covenant. 
This is a specific group of people. In fact, if we look down here a little ways, when we see, we're not going to get to it. I'm just going to be honest, all right? We're not going to get to the rest of the passage. We'll get to that next week. Moses, though, it says in verse 19, when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took blood of calves and goats and water and scarlet and hyssop, and he sprinkled the book itself and all the people. Does that mean he sprinkled every single person in the world? It says all people. Of course not, right? In fact, when we, we realized that there was a million and a half people in that camp wandering around in the wilderness at that time, I kind of got to wonder if he actually physically sprinkled every single individual person that was there in the camp too, right? You have to wonder that. The point is not, did he get every single one? The point is, he did this on behalf of these particular specific people. He didn't do it for the Midianites. He didn't do it for the Egyptians. He didn't do it for the other random nomadic parties that were out there. He didn't do it for Edom. He didn't do it for Moab. He didn't do it for the Canaanites. He did it for the nation of Israel. For the people God had, been, God had called out of the land of Egypt. In a similar way, Jesus is a mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance that death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression. So there's a specific group of people. Now, I'm going to be perfectly honest. There's a problem text here. Some of you who are savvy probably are aware of this text. And I want to go there because I don't want to tap dance around anything. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1. First of all then, Paul writing... I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, thanksgiving, be made for all people. Sounds similar, right? That Moses sprinkled all people. But Paul clearly has a context in mind here, too, right? He's not saying what you need to do is you need to start, you need to, you need to go and get one of them old school phone books. And open it up and just start, you've got to pray through every single person in the entire phone book or else you're not going to fulfill 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 1, right? Of course that's not what he's saying, we get that. He qualifies that, he helps us see that when he tells the people in the church who are suffering persecution, okay, when he says... I want prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. So he's saying, yeah, even those guys. I want you to pray, and specifically, because I know you'll probably leave them out because they're giving you a hard time right now, but even pray for these kinds of people, these specific people. So that we may lead a peaceful Quiet, godly life, dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For 
There's one God and one mediator. Here's our same word, right? Mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now, later on in the book, he does say that to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, but especially of those who believe. So it's within the same context here. So what do we do with this? Because I'm saying Christ mediates for a specific group of people. Here it says Christ desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. But then it does go on to say, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And he gave himself as a ransom for all, meaning all of those for whom he was mediating. We've already seen here that he tells the apostle, we have to take all the same way in all of these verses. If he says all people, and we know from the first verse, he does not mean you need to pray for every single specific individual or else you're not applying this correctly, then we know already if he uses that word again in the same way, it means the same thing. He's not changing meanings in the middle here and trying to confuse us and trying to trick us. What he's saying is it's pleasing in the sight of God who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Nobody denies that. He says he's the savior of all people, but especially of those who believe. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. We can go out and we can preach that message in the highlands and the lowlands, in the valleys and the way, by the river, by the sea, anywhere we go. We can go preach the gospel to every single person and trust that that gospel will be heard and that that person, if they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, will be saved. Does that necessarily follow, though, that therefore Christ mediated and ransomed every single person? I don't think it does. In fact, if we go back to our text, it says here, those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. He says here that only those who are called are the ones who are going to receive the promised eternal inheritance. And that his mediatorial work is one where those who are called receive this inheritance. And it's those who are redeemed, redeemed, ransomed, we just saw that word in 1 Timothy chapter 2, from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So who are these who are called, right? That's the question we have to ask at this point. Who are these people who are the called? Well, let's look at a couple of passages. Get your little flippers ready. Acts chapter 13, first of all. Let's go there. <laughs> now, if you know the story of Acts 15, pardon me, 13, Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas have been preaching the gospel and they go to a synagogue in Antioch and they preach the gospel hard and heavy on one Sabbath and everybody's minds are just blown by what the things he's been saying. So, the people in the synagogue and the, people, the Gentiles who heard it are like, come back next week and tell us these same things. So they come back again. He preaches another banger, right? Just, I mean, a doozy. And again, they're just blown away. But now, the Jews are a little upset. They're a little jealous. 
These guys are becoming a little more popular than we are, and all of a sudden all these people are coming. We've been having church here for years, and now all of a sudden we can't keep people, we, can't, we don't even have room, standing room only? Mm-mm. They got jealous. So, verse 46. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, Hey, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now look at verse 48. You got your Bibles open? Look down at verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Let me read that again. When the Gentiles heard what Paul and Barnabas said, they began rejoicing and glorifying God and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Here's a group of people that Paul, when he's talking to them face to face, he says to the Jewish opposers of him, you guys judge yourselves unworthy. You guys are casting aside eternal life. You guys, by your actions, are proving that you are not one of these called people. But these Gentiles hear the word of God and they start celebrating. Praise God! Yahoo! And it says, all of those who were appointed by God to eternal life believed. God doesn't owe anybody salvation. Nobody. He owes no one salvation. We have all earned justice from God, and He does not owe mercy, or else it's not mercy. He does not owe grace, or else it is not grace. He, in his love, has created and allowed you to continue to exist here on his planet, breathing his air, eating his food, enjoying his time. That's not the message we came to hear, Pastor Pat. I know. But it's something we need to hear from time to time, because I'm cocky. I'm arrogant. I... To use a biblical phrase, I think more highly of myself than I ought to, all of the time. And I need this reminder all of the time that God's the one who saved me from my sins. He's the one who called me. He's the one who drew me. He's the one who appointed me. He's the one when he died on the cross atoned for my sins knowing full well exactly who I am and how I sin against him and how I have raged against him in my past. And God has seen fit in his great love and mercy to save me from my sins. And I don't get it. I don't understand it. And I even sometimes go, Lord, why? And of course no answer comes back and there doesn't need to be. Except I choose the foolish things to confound the wise. That helps put me in my place. In the Gospel of John, Jesus speaking in John chapter 6. The Jews have just had the feeding of the 5,000 happen. And so they're all excited because Jesus 
has been doing all these miracles and now he miraculously feeds everybody. And so they're ready to make him king. I mean, this is, it. This is about the pinnacle of his popularity. They're ready to make him king here. And you know the end of John 6, if you're familiar with John, at the end of it, they all walk away frustrated and angry at him because of the hard words that he says. Sometimes Jesus does that. Here he says in verse 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. The Father gives to the Son, and the one who comes to the Son will never be cast out by the Son because he's been given by the Father. For I have come down, verse 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the him, will of the him, the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing, and of all that he has given me, I will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled. (laughs) Wait a second. (laughs) I see where you're going, Jesus, and I don't like that. They don't like that he said he's the bread of life who came down from heaven. He's claiming to be from God. He's claiming to have the God as his father. So they say to him, wait a second, this is Jesus. We, it's Joseph's son. We know them. How can he say he's come from heaven? So Jesus says, don't grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to the Father unless they have been drawn by the Father. They have been, to use our phrase in Hebrews, called by the Father. At the very end of this passage in chapter 6, everyone has gone away. In verse 61, he turns to his disciples and he says, Are you offended of me too? And Peter says, or pardon me, if, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And then verse 66, he said, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it was granted to him by the Father. We can't do it. Jesus' own words. No one has the ability within and of themselves to come to the Lord unless the Lord is the one who draws him. We need that mediator. We need Jesus. We need him deeply. We need him desperately. There's that wonderful passage. um, I've got so much I want to say. Romans chapter 8. Just listen. Romans chapter 8. You all know the verse. We know that for those who love God, God all thing God, who love God all things work together for good to them who are the called according to his purpose. All things work together for good for those who are called by God according to his purpose. For those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be firstborn among the brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. This is why the new covenant is so much better, beloved. This is it. 
Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant because it's nothing like the old covenant at all. It's nothing like rituals and trappings and sacrifices. I mean, this is silly nonsense compared to what God is telling us right here that he does for us in the person of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are all caught up in inter-Trinitarian acts and callings of love. That's what's going on here. Christ, God doesn't owe us, but he has seen fit to send Christ to be our mediator, to call us to himself, and to give us eternal life that we don't have any claim, stake, or any business having a part of. But he's done it by forgiving us all of our transgressions because he poured out all his wrath on Jesus Christ. This is amazing grace. And I hope like that song, when you hear a sermon like this, you say, oh, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Because you were lost and he found you. You were blind and by his miracle you see. God is the one who saves. God is the one who gives. God is the one who does all of the work. And beloved, the wonderful beauty of the new covenant is not in what you have to do, but what he has done for you. And it's yours to receive, to rest, to abide, and enjoy. One day we will live with him forever in that pure eternity of bliss. But beloved, it begins right now as we realize all of the work that God has done for us on our behalf so that God would be glorified and praised. Father, we thank you for the wonderful work that you have done for us in salvation because it's absolutely amazing that you would see fit to take us and save us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, Lord. Ah, sometimes it's just, it just seems too much. And I thank you for passages like this that we come to as we go verse by verse through a book because we need this reminder, we need this grounding, and we, we need to keep coming back to the truth that you are God, we are not. You saved us and we worship you and praise you for it, Lord. Thank you for your love, for your grace. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.